0: Stories That Matter Studios, I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town, The Journo Project. This podcast is all about recognising great Australian journos, wherever they may be around the world. With the media in Australia under increasing attack, and hard-won freedoms under threat, there's no better time to celebrate and highlight the work of the top journalists from down under. The prestigious international publication The New York Times has only had an Australian bureau for a little under three years. The bureau chief is Damien Cave. He's reported from locations around the globe, from Mexico to Baghdad, and is still getting his head around some of Australia's colloquialisms and quirks. On this episode of The Journo Project, Damien Cave also sends a warning that the lack of press freedoms for journalists in this country make it a time feel like an authoritarian regime, and that has greater implications now in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Damien, thank you so much for joining The Streets of Your Town, The Journo Project.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So here we are in the buzzing little metropolis of Bondi in Sydney. You have worked in postings all over the world, from the Miami Bureau, Mexico, Central America, Caribbean, Baghdad... What's it like for you now working here in Sydney?
1: You know, it's obviously very different. My ocean views are much better here than they were in Baghdad, but you know it's like any of these jobs in journalism. The great thing about it is you get to explore a place that you didn't know and try to very quickly become an authority and someone who can add a little value and insight. Uh, and so that's what I've tried to do here, just like I've done in other parts of the world.
0: Because you really established the bureau here. It was the first time the New York Times had
1: done this. It's actually the first bureau that we've had since World War II. Um, and so you know we opened three years ago with the idea of trying to kind of build an audience here, and you know, bring stories about this part of the world to our readers everywhere
0: because The New York Times had a pretty big knowledge base here really for a, a paper that's based so far away
1: yeah I mean we've been covering Australia you know for as long as we've been around and you know with reporters who would come in from Southeast Asia with re- reporters and stringers and freelancers here reporters who would visit but it's really been an expansion for us of kind of our ambition here and it's turned out you know to work pretty well
0: did your colleagues think that you were coming over for a holiday or if they look back now and you think it might have been a bit different or? yeah
1: you know there's been there have been plenty of <laughs> jokes uh, uh, you know, the publisher said to me, I hope you realize you have the best job at the New York Times. And I said, that's fine, just don't make me leave it. But no, but it's great. I mean, it's it's a really wonderful job. I mean, I do think that the advantage of coming to a country... Um, like this, is there are people who understand what the New York Times is, they understand the value of the New York Times. And, and, you know, part of the reason we're here is because we had a whole bunch of subscribers here even before we had a bureau. But also, it's a place that I don't think the world has fully understood or grasped uh, in any kind of nuanced way. And so there's a real opportunity to kind of tell the story of Australia in a way that's more complicated than um, the perception might be.
0: And looking at your experience, I can see, obviously, foreign reporting seems to be your your first love. I mean, is that something that you bring here to Australia I just find it interesting having that quite removed view I suppose of someone who hasn't grown up here does that help you finding those stories and explaining those issues
1: yeah I think so I mean I think there's a delicate balance to be had you know when we got here and I spoke to all kinds of Australians and I said well what what can and should the New York Times be doing here. And the one word they all used was perspective, keep adding perspective. And so I think there's an understanding of the value of having someone that maybe didn't grow up here look at it with fresh eyes. But at the same time, I think you have to really make sure your reporting is based on the people who do know it well. And I came in here and said, listen, I don't know it as well as the people who are here do. And and my job is to find the people to listen to and the voices that maybe aren't going to get into the system because of the way the system works. And, and then put it in persp- into perspective with comparisons to other countries, with data, with all kinds of other things that really let us tell the stories the way we do at The New York Times.
0: And have you found that even with this coronavirus, it's hard not to mention it with uh, the way that it's rolling out at the moment? Have you been able to get that perspective here as well with that issue?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's one of the stories I'm working on right now, too, mm. is just how does this side of the world, you know, view how this is playing out in the United States and Italy and in Europe? Uh, and so, you know, I think in some ways the pers- perspective can and should flow both ways. I think mm. it's important to do that. I think Australia is in an interesting position. I mean, there's a really strong public health system. Um, it's smaller. You know, it, it behaved pretty aggressively at the beginning of the pandemic, calling it a pandemic before anyone else. But by the same token, you know, there's been some trouble with testing. It's hard to see people kind of totally giving up their social lives. It's not quite happening yet. No one really knows how panicked they should be. <laughs> um, <laughs> the so, ta- it's toilet paper
0: gate? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it really it,
1: right now it feels like a country that's a bit in suspended animation trying to decide which model it wants to adopt. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'll see how it plays out. I think we're very much at the early phases of this story.
0: Was being a foreign correspondent always a dream for you?
1: It was. I grew up in a working-class factory town outside of Boston, and... Um, I, when I went to university, I didn't know what I wanted to study. All I knew is that I wanted to study abroad and go around the world. And so, you know, to some degree, it's been a dream come true just to be able to have that opportunity. The, the idea that I get to move on somebody else's dime and explore a place, you know, that's interesting and beautiful and kind of follow my curiosity is, is really, you know, I'd do it for free if I didn't need the money.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I saw, yes, that you grew up at Worcester. Worcester. yeah, Worcester, yeah. Worcester pronounced the same way they do in England, I guess. <laughs> but, not yeah. the source. No. I, yeah, um, I, I just found it interesting that they had quite a socially progressive history there, and I wondered if that's informed your work as well with the abolitionist movement. There. Yeah, you've, you've done mm-hmm. your homework. I mean, you know, I,
1: I don't know. I mean, Massachusetts has, has as a state in the, in the U.S., has a, a very particular kind of progressive movement. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it was where universal education, public education was first developed. You know, the university system is really fantastic. So I think that kind of if I would say the area where I grew up and shaped me at all, I think it was probably in two ways. One, in that a real craving for education and just a life of constant learning. And that's basically what journalism gives you the ability mm-hmm. to do. And then I also think that, you know, the the differences in in class and background and the way that societies come together and separate is also pretty intense in the area where I grew up. And mm-hmm. so I think one of the interests that I've always had is, is how people from different places and backgrounds come together and don't. And that's something that I've seen kind of play out all over the world.
0: And I can imagine it would inform your work here to where Australians like to see themselves as relatively classless, but perhaps not so.
1: They do. Maybe that was true 30 years ago, but um, I'm not so sure it's, I don't actually, I don't think it's ever been true, but, you know, as humans, we all categorize and separate. Mm -hmm. I do think there's a really deep egalitarian strain in Australian life that I think is in sharp contrast to the United States. I notice it all the time, but, you know, class is quite apparent and as the countries become wealthier, I think Australians have really kind of tried to ignore class. To a degree that actually blocks them from dealing with the class that's actually emerged and the lines that are there. I think, um, you know, I tell Australians, you know, you're one of the richest countries in the world, and they're often shocked to hear that. And I so and they say, oh, well, we don't, you know, we're just a small little country, and we don't have any power or influence. And and I remind them that the GDP here is roughly equal to Russia's, uh, and they're often surprised to hear that. So I think Australians have been kind of underestimating both the divisions and differences within their own society and their potential to influence the world for quite a while.
0: Except- perspective as you're saying <laughs> yeah, maybe. There you go. and uh, I noticed that you studied at Columbia did. uh did, was that where you learned the craft or was it more on the ground at once you started your practice
1: uh, it's a good question I mean mm. I I think it was probably more on the ground I think for those of us who came to journalism late and sort of needed a bit of an on-ramp Columbia provided that mm. and just like a basic level of okay this is what this thing is and how to do it but I, I really learned how to be a journalist, uh, actually, at a small newspaper in New Hampshire first, and then at a digital publication called Salon, where I covered the tech industry in San Francisco around the dot-com boom, basically. And so I had some great editors in both places, you know, some more traditional than others, and I feel like I was fortunate to have a mix of kind of nuts and bolts, but also a real desire to experiment and try new things.
0: So even before you got to Rolling Stone and the more well-known, prestigious titles, sets uh, grounding in New Hampshire still informs your work?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of things. I'm, you know, I made a bunch of mistakes there, which made me learn, you know, how to be more careful and um, <laughs> and got, you know, a good quick lesson in that. And also dealt with some of the, you know, the, the political campaigns that come through New Hampshire are very particular. So I was, you know, a 23-year-old reporting reporter interviewing John McCain and Al Gore in the back of, you know, the bus and and seeing how other reporters worked. And I think I learned a lot from, from watching them do their job. You know, I mean, journalism can be kind of a solitary craft unless you're lucky enough to kind of watch some of the best of the business do what they do. And and I think at various points along the way, I've been lucky enough to see that.
0: Well, congratulations on your awards, too. I should mention that you're a finalist in the 2008 Pulitzers uh, for international reporting. And also your team won quite a big overseas press uh, club award for best international coverage, I think, that year as well. How do you describe your role as a foreign correspondent for people who think, oh, this is exactly where I want to be? It sounds like it's been quite a long journey to get to this point. Though.
1: You know, it, it <laughs> has been quite a long journey, and the thing that I often tell young journalists is, there's not really any individual path. I never thought I'd be here. I never really knew that I'd be a foreign correspondent. But you know, for a good chunk of my career, the answer to any opportunity that came up was yes, and I think that that's you know an important factor. If you're too picky about what you cover and choosing, you know, things that sound more prestigious as opposed to things where you can learn the most, then it can slow you down. Uh, you know, along the way, I've covered all kinds of subjects I didn't think I was interested in, only to discover that I was and to be able to learn how to how to cover and explain things that might not otherwise naturally appeal to me. So I think there's really real value in just getting out there and reporting and, and seizing whatever opportunity comes to you and just doing the best job you can.
0: So you've been in the journo game for a couple of decades now? What have you noticed sort of change in that time?
1: Gosh, it's changed quite a lot. I mean, one of the things that, you know, I I think has just become the norm for me in my career trajectory is that every two or three years there's layoffs wherever I've worked. And, you know, this is an industry that's severely disrupted and it's going to continue to be disrupted. And so, you know, what I think that means is that you have to stay fresh. You have to constantly be creatively ambitious. This isn't just a job. It's really a calling. And I think you have to kind of look at it as something where, you know, you have a responsibility both to yourself and to your audience to, to, to stay fresh and to really be pushing the envelope to try and connect with them. You know, it's, it's no longer enough just to say, oh, my job is to just inform the public. No, you need to connect with them. And you need to go deeper than that. And I think that's really where the value in journalism comes from. It's
0: been a common theme in uh, the Journal Project interviews that that it's a calling. Why do you think that? Is it because because of that personal cost. At times, I imagine for yourself, even in places like Baghdad, that must have been fascinating, but comes at some personal cost as well.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, listen, it's it's a really wonderful job, but often it's a huge pain in the ass, you know, like, I mean, I've missed birthdays and there's, you know, weekends that are completely disrupted. There's weddings I couldn't go to, uh, you know, there are hours, I wake up at four in the morning, still wondering if I got something wrong in a story. When I say it's a calling, it's something that kind of consumes your life and you have to sort of be willing to ride it out in that way. If you want a nine to five job, this isn't for you. If you want something where you're deeply and fully engaged with the world you know, at every waking minute, then I think it is an unbelievably great opportunity.
0: You've done a lot of coverage from Christchurch and that's just been published lately. There was so much work that went into that over months, really. Can you tell us about that and the decisions you made in pulling together those
1: stories? I was in Christchurch after the attacks for three weeks and, you know, getting very little sleep and covering it, you know, like it was a war. And in many ways, it reminded me of covering the war in Iraq mm-hmm. as you had these families, you know, demanding answers from from officials who couldn't give them to them fast enough and just so much pain and suffering. But as part of that, one of the things I wanted to do was make sure that I didn't just leave the story behind um, after a few weeks. And so when I was there, uh, I, I met a family that had, the news about them had started to trickle out. It was a father who had saved his young son and dove over his two-year-old and, and kept him alive, but they were both shot. And they had a bunch of media requests and they didn't really talk to anyone. And, and I met with them and I said, listen, you know what I'd like to do is tell your story, you know, over time, over a year, or however many months it requires, and um, and just really understand your lives and, and tell that story as accurately and with as much nuance and sensitivity as possible. Will you let me do that? And you know, it took a little while, but eventually they trusted me and opened up their lives to me, and and um, in every imaginable way. And I have to give them enormous credit because they didn't, they never at any point said to me, "Hey, let's shy away. This is this is too rough or too sensitive, or you know, I don't really look." good in this scene or i don't know i feel like you're saying that i'm that i'm just too angry here and i mean what they went through was really really intense the injuries were severe the progress was slow but at every step of the way you know we had a trusting relationship that allowed me to tell that story in a way that that i'm proud of and i know they were happy with too
0: how do you establish that trust and prove to people that you're you're worthy of that you
1: you know i mean there's a bunch of different different ways. I think part of it is just like doing it over time and being able to point to stories. I mean, in this case, I said, listen, I can I can point you to people who I've done this with before if you want to talk to them about me and about sort of my process. And the other thing I promised them is that, you know, there wouldn't be any surprises. And I think this is an important factor in how, how and why this worked well for me is I said to them, I'm going to come back to you with every word of this story before I publish. You're not going to get approval. This isn't about you deciding what the story is. I still have that. But I want to discuss it with you. And if there are things that you think I get wrong whether it's even that one word about an emotion that I describe or anything that's in there like I want to hear about it and I want to talk about it before we publish rather than after and so I think they felt like they were part of the process in a deeper way and I think that's that's how I've been able I've done this before with sensitive stories and um, and it works really well it helps sort of build trust and maintain trust and I stayed in touch with them I mean I went back several times um, you know and, and just got to know them and I think you know the thing about journalism is there, there are certain kinds of reporters who, you know, go in and go out really fast. And that's one way to do it. And sometimes we all have to do that. But to the extent that you can put time in and show your sympathy and your empathy and your sensitivity, I think the stories are better.
0: What have you noticed, speaking on that trust issue, I just, I think it brings me back to trust of the public. It's obviously an issue here in Australia. I feel like there's such a distrust of the media, oh, exactly. yeah. but... Is that a common thing throughout the world now, or is this something that Australia really does need to to deal with and grapple with, from your perspective? I,
1: I mean, I, th- I think it extends beyond Australia. It's very true in in many countries, and it's in part the product of politicians and a political class that really don't want us to be trusted because that gives them the ability to dictate to the public what is real and what they want them to focus on. So you have to understand that it comes from there. I also think it's you know there's an oversimplification. This idea of the media is is this term that you know gets thrown around. But the media is, you know, it's people like me. I'm a father of two who, like, feels very lucky to do this job. And, you know, if you tell me your story, I'm going to do the best I can to tell it accurately. And so I think people forget that there's humans behind, you know, this and people who kind of love what they do. And I also think that, you know... Australia sometimes. I mean, the thing that's particular to Australia that I think I've noticed is that it's a it's such a combative media culture that I think a lot of journalists, frankly, spend too much time talking to each other and worrying about what each other thinks or trying to please their bosses, as opposed to remembering that really they work for the public and and um, and and trying to sort of build that trust means explaining what we do. It means not elbowing the guy next to you when you're standing at a news conference. You know, it means a whole bunch of things that that, that also show that we're in. in this together. I do think it's gotten a little bit better. I think, you know, certain issues like secrecy and transparency that affect us all as journalists have become, you know, more important in Australia. And I think that's brought journalists together a little bit. I think, you know, big events like the fires, I think, have really shown what Australian journalists can do when they get out of Canberra. And I think that's helped build trust a little bit. And so I actually think that it's improving in Australia, but I still think there's a long way to go.
0: It'll be interesting to see as coronavirus rolls out, whether that is an opportunity for journalists to restore that trust again, because the people do seem to be grappling desperately trying to find sources that are reliable.
1: Yeah, I no, it's true. I mean, I think this is a really complicated and tricky story because... People are so hungry for information. At the same time, you know, I think we have to be careful not to, to to sensationalize or create panic. Although we're going to get blamed for that no matter what. So, you know, I think our job in this case is really just to cover it from 360 degrees and to inform people in as many different ways as we can, and then they can kind of decide on their own.
0: How do we educate people about fake news? Does that come into this as well, or is that really a separate issue?
1: No, I mean, I, I do think that's a real issue. I think that, you know, we need to knock down myths when we can, as much as we can. and um, But, you know, the to me, the best alternative to that is just to, to give good information and I think you know, I think the New York Times has proven that there's a really good business and good information <laughs> and so um, my hope is that that's sort of where people will go we'll all make mistakes I mean there was an email that came around this week about the coronavirus that looked really real that had a bunch of advice that I totally believed until someone you know told me two days later that you know a bunch of the prescriptions in there were false and so you know it's easy to get duped it happens to all of us
0: and are subscriptions still rising I, know, I think I read that with New York Times particularly in the wake of Trump and that that was an encouraging factor that people are perhaps, yes, craving that reliable information.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it, the the times ha- is at a better is in a better financial place than it's been at in any of the fifteen years that I've been there. And you know, part of it is Trump. Part of it, I think, is a real understanding of the value of journalism. Part of it, I think, is the Times got better at kind of catching up to where the digital world was heading, and and created a product that people were willing to pay for in a system that made it relatively easy. Um, but you know, it's it's you never know how it's going to be. It, you know, in a year, two years, three years, five years, who knows? I mean, like I said, every few years there's another catastrophe in this business and so you know we'll write it out as much as we can
0: yes the, the podcast of course new york times podcast the daily is very successful around the world it's part of that embracing all the different media i suppose even within that New, traditional newspaper
1: format. Yeah, the Daily's great. I mean, and I think that's a real example of the Times trying to be innovative and creative um, at a time frankly when it wasn't so clear we were going to survive or succeed. I mean, you know, a few years ago the Times was really on its back. You know, there was a time when it almost didn't make payroll. And that really opened the doors to creativity uh, and to innovation. And the Daily was one of the things that came out of that. You know, we wanted to recreate the sense of a habit. If a newspaper disappears and it doesn't show up on your stoop anymore, how do you make people come back and want to understand and care about the world and care about the business that we provide them, and the service we provide them. And the daily has helped kind of recreate that habit.
0: What's your perspective on the issues of press freedom in Australia? I think particularly since the Australian federal police raids last year, did that shock you to see that that could happen in Australia or what, what was your reaction to that?
1: I mean, it, it shocked me, but I think it shocked me less, frankly, than it shocked a lot of other people, because even prior to that, I'd been writing about Australia as this extremely secretive democracy that lacks transparency in a whole bunch of different ways, and it had really empowered the state to keep information from the public. So, to me, that was just confirmation of what I'd already kind of seen. I'd seen it in the Pell trial with suppression orders. I'd seen it in public records requests that are either rejected or cost literally thousands and thousands of dollars for information that should be much more accessible than that uh, and even in just in the way that officials speak to you you know the idea that there are so few public officials who are paid by tax dollars who are willing to go on the record and just put their name to what they're saying is astounding uh, I mean I think it's a country I think it's greatest struggle with journalism is this culture of secrecy I think it's a, a huge problem as somebody said to me you know Australia's basically built an authoritarian system it just doesn't have an authoritarian in charge <laughs>
0: So (laughs) that's that's an interesting way to look at it. What do you think is the way to deal with that, too. I know that it frustrates many journalists, but it's trying to get the public along with us. Exactly. I
1: think that's the enormous struggle. I mean, I, I think, again, to my point about trust, like, how do you explain to people why this is valuable to them? Sometimes I tell people, you know, listen, secrecy and transparency, it's not just about you know, national security or intelligence. It's about, you know, maybe there's a teacher at your school who's doing something really wrong, you know, around your kids, and you'll never get that information because it's secret. And, you know, you have to think about it almost at a really micro level and understand that it really seeps all the way down I mean police departments are extremely secretive if you have an abusive cop you might never know it and that cop might be moved around 10 15 times before anything happens and so you know the trust in the system here I admire Australians trust in government it's much greater than it is in the United States and I think there are there are a bunch of benefits that come from that but by the same token if you don't have you know openness and transparency then there's no accountability and you need both
0: and seeing the way the Pell trial rolled out must have been just an incredible shock, I suppose, as well. Or did you uh, it was an see enormous that coming shot. too?
1: I mean, for me and my editors, we were stunned at the oh. idea that a single judge could basically define what information was accessible to the world about one of the most senior and powerful figures in the Catholic Church. And the idea that that was possible and accepted, I think, stunned the editors of New York Times and frankly stunned the world. And I think it was really an example of the way Australia works and sometimes doesn't even notice how much an anomaly it is I mean even compared to the UK compared to Europe compared to Canada compared to the United States this is a more secretive country than all of them
0: we'll see what happens with the press freedom inquiry I suppose and what findings come out of that whether that makes any difference
1: oh it's going to be so hard to break through with that at this point you know I mean the people <laughs> who are behind it are, are are great and they're trying very hard and you know we'll see I mean on the other hand you know we'll, it, it will be interesting to see how this coronavirus coverage plays out because to some degree maybe it can rebuild some of the trust and and you know if there are Moments when the government tries to keep something secret, and, and 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 that sort of changes the dynamic. Maybe it will, but at this point, I have to say they've been they've done okay, and so I think it's going to be really hard to get traction for that issue in this moment.
0: I just mentioned your bushfire coverage as well. That was did the ferocity of that shock you as well? Uh, Surprise
1: you? You know. When we came to Australia, we looked at a few global issues that we knew would be of interest to both Australians and the world, and climate change was definitely one of them. So the scientific community here is really strong, and the people who do good work around climate change, there are many of them, and I've spent a lot of time talking to them. You know, I think the first fire story I wrote this year was in September, and it was you know, the headline was about it being an omen for a bad season. So I think we saw it coming. What I think was surprising was the ferocity of it when it turned in December, January, and the degree to which the world cared and was interested, I think were, th- that was surprising, I think, to many of us. I mean, you know, th- they were devastating fires, but I also think the global response, and I've spoken to all these Australians who were traveling, who said, gosh, you can't meet anyone without them asking about how you're doing in Australia with the fires. And I think that's a real sign of how much the world really cares about Australia and, and, and feels an affinity for this place, as a place that's, that's just such its own unique place in the world with its own unique wildlife and habitats and nature and, and, and just the culture of the place and the people. And so I think there's a real love for Australia and I think it came out with the fires. So I think, you know, it's another sign of Australia being able to do more with the power that it has and understand its role in the world in a deeper way. We're starting to do more translation. We have, you know, a pretty large translation team in Spanish and in Chinese. And and so, um, it's an effort again, to become more global. I mean, it's part of the same reason I'm here is if we're going to be a global news brand, then we need to be everywhere and we need to be speaking multiple languages.
0: And just my last local aspect, the, the collapse of AAP recently. Is that something that you also see as a bit of a harbinger, I suppose?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just another sign of the struggles of journalism in Australia and around the world, especially around, you know, local and regional coverage. I mean, that's the thing that I worry about. I mean, even if the Times does well, there are lots of areas of this country and the world that just don't get covered unless you have, you know, places like the AAP to cover them. So I think it's a real disappointment. It sounds like some of those journalists will get picked up, you know, by some of the members or the people who had been paying for AAP, and so that's a positive, but it's again, just a cha- another change. I mean, this is just an industry that's constantly trying to figure itself out. And, you know, it works when we have the support of the public. And I think there's more support than people might have thought in some corners, but there's still a long way to go. And so I hope that they do well. And, I, you know, I, I really hope that journalism in Australia thrives. I think that The New York Times is, you know, not here to compete. It's here to kind of help and add another voice and just show what journalism can be in a place that's so interesting. I think every country is trying to, you know, journal, journalism has been around a long time, but it is constantly evolving, and the forces that that strengthen it and weaken it are constantly evolving. You know, fake news wasn't quite the same today as it used to be. And I, and I do think Australia is kind of ready to have this conversation. I think that there are, there is a lot of interest in, in, you know, in that perspective and in trying to sort of figure out how to make journalism here sustainable and thriving and and beloved
0: well thank you so much damien for speaking to us on the Jono project really appreciate it as you go back out to the newsroom now here in bundai i suppose can we finish with what has your news sense changed how do you know that this is a, a story particularly maybe from an investigative sense is there an antenna that goes off or what tips can you give you know
1: it's funny i i, I have an answer to this from our intern who finished up here a couple of days ago. And we asked her, well, what do you think you you know learned being here? And she said, you know, one of the things that you guys probably don't even notice you say all the time is, well, what's the deeper thing that this reveals? Like, what, what does this reveal about Australia or the world um, that, you know, makes it a New York Times story. And so I think that's something that we is just part of our DNA. And it leads to better stories and deeper reporting, I think. And, and um, so, yeah, I think that's one of the things that I, frankly, I forgot and didn't even really notice that that's what we do. But it's a question we ask ourselves a lot is, you know, what's what's the deeper meaning of this?
0: And have you grappled with the Australian slang? You've got the hang of that after three years I
1: uh, definitely cannot claim to have the hang of it. I, uh, I do give people plenty of permission to call me Damo. I, you know, I no longer expect my name to be Damien, which is perfectly fine. But the slang is great. I mean, the, list, the language here is fantastic. I mean, you know, a third of the time I have no idea what someone's saying. but um, But when I go look it up, it makes me, you know even more impressed
0: yeah yeah exactly
1: that one I got I had to look up there was a guy there was a clip of a guy from Queensland who got off the airport and was being asked about what he was going to do in self-isolation and uh, there were a few comments in there that I had to look up
0: (laughs) and that's what makes Australia so unique exactly thank you so much Damien for coming on the Jeno Project
1: thanks for having me
0: That was Damien Cave, the New York Times Bureau Chief in Sydney, Australia, speaking to me for this episode of Streets of Your Town, the Journo Project podcast. Streets of Your Town is produced by Nance Haxton, aka The Wandering Journo, with production assistance from Michael Adams. That's it for this episode. I'm Nance Haxton. Stay up to date with the latest episode of Streets of Your Town by subscribing on your podcast app on iTunes or SoundCloud. See you next time.